90s basketball was a lot of fun playing against these dudes. They absolutely fought it every night. Five, four, three, two, one. Hill puts it on the floor. everybody it is about that time once again this is the 90s basketball show my name is brian swain thank you for tuning in now we've just gone through the 2020 nba draft the first and hopefully last to be held virtually it started with george's anthony edwards going first overall to the minnesota timberwolves and ended at number 60 with the new orleans pelicans selecting utah state product sam merrill aka mr irrelevant That's what they call the last player taken in the draft. But don't discount Sam Merrill. Maybe he's not conferred stardom like the guys who were taken at the top end of the draft. But there's nothing saying he can't make it. And for proof of that, look no further than my guest this episode, Don Reed. Drafted out of Georgetown in 1995 with the 58th and final pick by the Detroit Pistons, Don Reed spent eight seasons in the NBA and would have played more were it not for a severe injury that cut his career short. From being Mr. Irrelevant to starting alongside two future Hall of Famers, Grant Hill and Joe Dumars, as a rookie in the Motor City and carving out a niche in the NBA, it's an inspiring journey and one of a number of things I discussed with John Reed in our recent conversation. At center, 6-8, from Georgetown, John Reed. Don, welcome to the show. How you doing? Pretty good. How you doing? I'm doing good, and uh, thank you for joining me. Looking forward to getting some of your memories here. Before we get going, Don, I would like to start off by talking about Coach John Thompson, who passed away recently, and of course, you played for him for four seasons at Georgetown. And if I could just get a few of your thoughts and reflections of what he meant to you. Well, you know, I I was recruited by Coach Thompson when I went to Georgetown, and the main thing that I remember, he always said he wanted people that wanted to come there. I never went on a visit. I actually was playing in an AAU tournament at Georgetown, and he left my letter of intent in my locker room during halftime of the game. And that was his biggest thing. He wanted people to want to come there. He didn't want to go hunt anybody down. Wow. So when you saw that letter, you knew right then and there that Georgetown was the place for you? Well, actually, that was the only schools I had known about. My cousin, uh, who was starting something out of basketball because I didn't start playing basketball until the ninth grade, always talked about Coach Thompson and Patrick Ewan. And that was the main school I had known about. So it was amazing that I was able to go there. I mean, at the, at the time, I was uh, in the, going into my 11th grade year. So it was kind of early. Like I signed a letter of intent before I was a senior. So it helped me out a lot just by knowing the pressure was off. I mean, It helped me just by knowing that I had already committed to somewhere that I wanted to go and somewhere that was a coach that developed uh, big guys. And that was a a help for me because I was still a work in progress because at that point I only played for three years. 
what were some of the biggest impacts that Coach Thompson had on you, both as a player and as a person? Well, every practice was something for on the court and off. I mean, he always focused on us. Um, never look at any of your accomplishments as a high or a low, because if you go in the run and look at Sports Center every night, there's going to be a night you're hiding from Sports Center. So just take it one day at a time and just keep an even keel. Don't get too high. Don't get too low, because you know you never can change. Uh, what happens on the court just by going home and saying something different. You're, it's going to be the same way every night. Either somebody's going to interpret it in a way that it was your worst game or somebody's going to say it was your best game. So just never have that as your measuring tool in life or on the court. And he would stop practicing someday and just sit there and talk to us. And it helped me be able to work with any type of coach because – uh, he wasn't the same way every day. Some days he'd yell at us. Some days he'd talk to us. Some days he would be philosoph- uh, do some philosophy to us and tell us uh, this will help you out in the future. And we had no idea what he was talking about, but later on down the road, you'd understand what he was trying to talk to you at that point. Well, as I mentioned there, you played four seasons for Coach Thompson at Georgetown uh, from 1991 to 1995, and you were eligible for the 1995 draft. Now, going into that draft, what was kind of the sense you were getting and team interest the teams were showing in potentially drafting you? I knew of nothing. Coach Thompson talked to me uh, maybe one time and said, you might get an opportunity to go to Milwaukee. And I was like, okay. And uh, during our senior week at Georgetown, I broke my thumb at a softball game. And it was like, I want to say maybe three or four weeks before the combine camp. So I had a broken thumb when I went to the combine camp, and I had to play. I hit it for about four or five of the medical examinations until they had pulled on it enough where I said, ouch. And <laughs> then I had to play in the games and all the scrimmages and stuff. I had a broken thumb throughout that whole time. Um, and I, I didn't realize it, but later on, I'd done a couple interviews with Toronto. I'd done a one with uh, the Pistons and um, – the thing that kept coming back to me uh, later on when I got picked up by the Pistons was um, I told him I'd never have an off day. I could always run the court, rebound, block shots. I could never have an off day doing that. And that really stuck with them that I knew I wasn't a score. I knew what I could do, and I could give them that every day. And just from that point of view, I didn't even expect to – I wasn't invited to the draft. I was actually at a Georgetown basketball camp. I was a counselor, and I think the campers watched the first round of the draft, and then we had to send them to bed. So I got a call on a payphone in a dorm room that I needed to come to Detroit. I didn't even watch the draft. So it was a surprise to me. I woke up probably about 11 o'clock, had to go home and get a suit and head on to Detroit. Wow, that's incredible. So it sounds like you weren't expecting it all to be drafted. No, not at all. Wow, okay. So what was your reaction when you found out? Okay, I've got to go prove myself again. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did do that. You did do that. And, you know, I'm really interested to get your thoughts on this. It's a thing in sports where the last pick in every draft gets stuck with the nickname Mr. Irrelevant, which I really don't think is fair. But how did you process that? There's a lot of guys that are drafted in the second round, but when you're that last pick, you kind of have that notoriety. And how did you reconcile that I'm good enough to get drafted, but I'm also stuck with the distinction of being the last guy in the draft? I don't think I heard it as much back then as you do now. Uh, like I guess you just wasn't expecting to even make the team. 
So it wasn't a big thing of, oh, he was drafted the last pick. I think I might have heard it maybe once the first day I went to Detroit, and that was it. And from that point on, I was just trying to make the team. I knew other people ahead of me were – I had guaranteed contracts or were ready to sign them, and I had nothing. I was on, uh like, unguaranteed contracts. So I had to prove myself every day. How did you think your rookie training camp with the Pistons went? And do you remember when you found that you made the team? Hmm. I knew my training camp was pretty good. I mean, we had a couple guys that were playing center, but they were hurt at the time. Or they had gotten hurt throughout training camp. I know we had Eric Lechner and Mark West were there. And I think maybe Terry Mills was there too. And I was not expected to play center. They thought I was too small to play center. And Theo Ratliff, they were trying to make him play center, but he hadn't gained enough weight at the time. So he was getting pushed around a lot, and they were just trying to push him into playing. And then I got an opportunity to get in a blowout game in Miami. And I played against Alonzo. And he beat me up when I was a freshman, and I had a lot of payback coming. So I got the opportunity to go up against Alonzo in Miami. And I think the next game we played Patrick in New York, and I got to start that game. And from then on, I started at center for the Pistons. So I added it up. Uh, there were 58 players taken in the 1995 NBA draft, of course, 57 ahead of you. And you ended up playing more games than all but uh, 22 of them. So, I mean, if, if that doesn't show, you know, what – it doesn't matter where you're drafted; it's what you do after that. Um, and what is it that you think that you you brought to the team at that point? Because you know you didn't just play for the Pistons your rookie year; you, you played a lot. I mean, it, as the season went on, you were pretty much starting most of the games. Yeah, I guess like like I talk to a lot of kids now about uh, the social media, how you know of people of mostly all of their highlights, all of their accolades. There was no social media at that time. I was young. I wasn't that into basketball. So I remember playing when I used to go to the Georgetown basketball camp when Alonzo and Patrick and Dikembe would come back uh, from the offseason of the NBA. They would play in the summer, and some of the bigger campers got to play against them. I got to play against them. I didn't know who they were. I just thought they were other big guys. And I guess that's been my mentality all along, that they're just another player. I guess now it's harder to do that because there's so much access to every game everywhere and you find out more about a player or you find out their highlights or you find out what they're good at without even meeting them and seeing for yourself. And my attitude was I could run the floor. I would bang with them as much as I could. And then I started seeing that they didn't want me to hurt them during the summer, so they always picked me on their teams. I said, okay, that's a niche. I know I'll get to play if I'm going to be on his team because he doesn't want me to go up against him. So I just started finding things that I could do to stay on the court. And running the court, uh, setting good picks, uh, rebounding the ball, wasn't fighting a point guard trying to get a shot, just letting them keep the ball in their hands as much as they wanted, not calling for the ball. And they would want me on the team. So I was seeing that the things I was doing would keep me on the court. So that's just been the thing that, I would try to find a nit that somebody else wasn't doing and do that. You mentioned how at 6'8", you were an undersized center. How do you think you'd fit in the game today where players' positions are less defined by their size than they might have been back then? 
Um, it's hard to say. I mean, straight up and down the court, trying to tire out the centers that were much taller than me. And that was the thing. Uh, go down the court, drag them with you. If they don't keep up, we'll throw you the ball. That was always the thing for me. Um, I would have to guard usually the power forward, sometimes the, th- the forward on the other team. Um, but like you say, now in the NBA, I've tried to play some pickup games with uh, some kids. Uh, it's a total different game. I mean, nobody sets picks anymore. Uh, it's a lot of three-point shooting. Uh, it's a lot of quick shots. Uh, if you don't get the rebound, you try it again next time. So it's a total different game, and it's, it's, it's a big change. Like, I really couldn't watch the NBA the way I played it. I mean, it was a lot of uh, different rule changes and things that brought me back to the game to say, oh, this is nothing what I played. I can be a fan of this. Um, it seems like an all-star game every game. It's a different game now, uh, for sure. Uh, so you played in Detroit until 2000. Then you went to Washington and also went on to Orlando. Uh, so you played with, if I got it right, seven Hall of Famers in your career, Allen Iverson and Alonzo Mourning when you were at Georgetown, Joan Dumars and Grant Hill with Detroit, Mitch Richmond in Washington, and then Patrick Ewing and Tracy McGrady in Orlando. Who was the best player that you played with? Huh. I would say at the time when I played with him, I'd say Tracy McGrady. He was out to prove something. We didn't have Grant Hill when I was there. And he had just come from Toronto, and the team was on his shoulders at that time. And he was doing everything he could to win every game. And you could tell that. It seemed like every time he was on the court, I felt we had a chance to win. So after you played for the Magic, you were traded back to Detroit uh, before the 2002-2003 season. And uh, I'll let you tell the story about how that unfolded, but you got hurt uh, in a preseason game. The last preseason game. I had just broken into the starting lineup the last preseason game. I was playing with Ben Wallace. He was going to be a center and power forward. And it was in Tampa, Florida, and the floor was sweating. It was uh, ice underneath the floor, and the floor was sweating. And you could feel it before the game started, and I want to say – First quarter, I slipped, and I thought the referee had fallen on my leg. I couldn't move. My chin touched my toe, and I heard a big pop, and I thought the ref had fallen on me, and I tried to get up, and I couldn't move my foot. And I didn't know what had happened. They carried me off, and I remember getting Joe Dumas in the hallway saying, oh, we lost him for the season. And I was like, What? And I had torn my Achilles in two spots. And I was off to surgery the next morning, flew back to Detroit, and had surgery the next morning. And I was ready to go back to work with a strength and conditioning coach there, well-known, Arnie Kander. And he's a good personal friend of mine. He worked me six hours a day of the things that he wanted me to do, and I did probably four hours a day of the things he didn't want me to do at home. And I was just trying to do what I could to stay out of the way. I hated being in the way throughout the season. I had a boot on for a while, but I just hated being in the way. But I wanted to be a part of the team. Um, I, I started practicing back with the team right after All-Star break. 
And that was like the quickest anybody had come back from an Achilles injury at that point in time. And I was fighting my way trying to get back on the court. And I was practicing every day. I was doing everything back after All-Star break, and I was able to play in the last two games of the season. You mentioned how Joe Dumars said you were lost for the season. Uh, where was your mind at? Like, were you always thinking that people are saying, okay, he's lost for the season, but was it your personal goal? Did you always know that, yeah, I'm going to be back? Oh, I always knew on my own route. Every time I've gone anywhere, he's too small to play center. He won't make it to the NBA. So to myself, I knew my own self that I was going to do everything I could to get back. So I was going to do everything to do to play in the NBA. I was going to do everything to do to play center. So that was my mentality all the time. You played, as as you mentioned there, you played in the, the last game of the season, and you would end up then retiring later on. But when you came back for and played that last game, did you know that was going to be the final game of your career at that time? No. I was working out the whole summer. Um, they were telling me to stay around. I think at that point in time, uh, Delico Rebraccia had had some type of heart murmurs or something, and they didn't think he was coming back and they were going to sign me. And I think like two days before training camp, they signed him and said they didn't have room on the roster for me. And then I got a call from Philadelphia that I think my, I think his name was Todd McCullough was about to get, wasn't going to sign back and I was going to go to Philadelphia. And he said, just kept saying, wait around. I was working out twice a day for a while. And then I just said, forget it. I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> I couldn't just work out not knowing where I was going or if it was going to happen. And at that point in time, too, the Achilles injuries were like a, a black flag on you, too, because not many people played the same way after an Achilles injury. And I was an energy guy, hustle guy, and it was kind of like, um, he's not going to be the same. Well, I know you've kept busy and been involved with a lot of interesting and great initiatives over the years since you retired. Um, tell me a little bit about what you have been up to and uh, what you're doing now. Okay, well, I went to Georgetown. I got my degree in sociology with uh, a specification on child abuse and neglect. So I've always been involved in youth programs and things like that. And uh, during the, my days after the NBA, I had done some internships with custom car installations through the NBA. The NBA would set it up for different companies that wanted to be involved with the NBA, and I did a couple internships with that, and I was very interested in that. And I had a custom car shop in Orlando after playing down there. Uh, I got hit by two hurricanes, and I said, I'm going back to Detroit. At least I can plan for the winners. So I teamed up with Lindsey Hunter. We had a custom car shop in uh, Michigan for a while. And then the big three went out. So people weren't doing much with cars at that time. But during that time, I was working at the Boys and Girls Club, um, doing some basketball camps and stuff like that. And then I saw uh, kids that weren't involved in the three major sports that they had at the Boys and Girls Club that was basketball, baseball, and hockey. And they would just sit around in the game room. And um, I tried to pick all those kids up and turn into something that they would all be interested in. They couldn't say that they – didn't know how to play this game. They weren't good at it. So I made up all these different types of games where we would even the playing field. If there was somebody that was overbearing and talking, he couldn't talk the whole time. Or 
If there was a strong kid there, he could only use one arm. And we called it the oddball Olympics. So we played hockey sometimes with a football, and nobody could say that they didn't know how to play it because I didn't know how to play it. We were making up the rules as we went along, and it brought the kids together that wouldn't have interacted with each other uh, any any time because they weren't involved in the main sport. But going through these things, everybody on an even playing field, they found out that they had other interests that were similar and could connect on that level. So sports in a non-traditional way helps people connect and build their confidence that way. And um, that program kind of developed, and I got uh, an opportunity to work with adults with special needs because they were looking for um, kind of a, a gym program that was adaptable for anybody. And I said, well, that's kind of what I was doing. I was adapting it for everybody's strength. So I started working with the Troy School District with post-high special needs students where I was doing the PE part. And it was a drive for me, and I only did it like two days a week. And I said, what else can can I do down here? And so then I became a job coach for special needs uh, adults. And we would go out to job sites and learn job skills and life skills and build up a resume without being on paper of the skills that people with special needs could do. And I did that for a while. I was like, what else can I do? And then they uh, made me a program um, assistant where I come up with different programs of um, ideas of breaking a, a real job down into skills of doing a repetitive processes over and over without involving reading or or writing or things like that, but learning the process of a job that, you know, might be a job that they could actually get by having the skills, but they couldn't fill out a resume to say that they could actually do these jobs or get an opportunity to do it. And I did that for a while, and then I saw after the age of 26, you're kind of thrown out of the post-high special needs community on your own. There's no more support after that. And I connected with a company in North Carolina that is called Extraordinary Adventures Michigan. Um, they had a couple of uh, parents that were involved with special needs that had businesses that they wanted to involve people with special needs to do. They have a laundry service. They have a dog walking service. Um, they have an event uh, committee that they rented out places for banquets. They cleaned city buses. They did a parking lot for the UNC games. So this kind of program was developing all across the country, and they added like a chapter here in Michigan. And I was the director for that here in Michigan, and I got some of the students that I worked with in Troy, and we had a laundry service going on here, and we did small parts assembly. The, the type of environment that was in North Carolina was not the same as in Michigan. But we found jobs that work for this area, more industrial-type jobs where they're doing the same repetitive things that they could get confident in doing the same type of jobs over and over. And to most people, they would get annoyed by doing that. But with people with autism and other disabilities, they find comfort in that by doing the same job, knowing it's consistent, um, keeping it on the same level all the time. And that was what I was doing for the last couple of years. Um, I've still been working on that, but with COVID-19, a lot of uh, the group homes don't allow the people with special needs to leave the group homes and come back home. So that's been on a, a kind of a pause, but also a pause from some of the industries that I work with. They've been on a pause, too, because some of their parts aren't going out as quick as well. So that's what I've been doing since basketball. I've also been starting to coach my daughter's 
uh, basketball team. I, I see that starting a little earlier helps. <laughs> <laughs> I gotcha. How old's your daughter? She is nine years old. I also have a younger one that is six, and she plays soccer. Soccer. All right. That's great. Well, it's been fun chatting with you, Don. I'm going to close out here, uh, this being the 90s basketball show. I often ask guests their favorite things from the 90s. So I will start off with, what is your favorite 90s TV show? Favorite TV show? I say Knight Rider. Okay. Um, how about favorite music group or artist? From the 90s. Hmm. I would say Biggie. Movie. Movie. Barry Gordy's The Last Dragon. That is my favorite movie of all time. And the last one, your favorite 90s fashion. Anything neon. <laughs> my favorite color is neon green. I don't know. I think neon might be making a comeback. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll see. Well, Don, it's been really great talking to you. I think uh, you have one of the you know great inspirational stories. Love to share that around draft time. So thank you for joining me, and um, appreciate you sharing some of your memories. All right. Thanks a lot. Before I get out of here, I'm excited to let everyone know that the basketball show has returned to TSN 1260 Radio. You can catch it on the airways every Saturday from 11 to noon Mountain Time and tune in online at tsn1260.ca. And of course, catch all the episodes wherever you get your favorite podcasts and check out the 90s Basketball Show archive at 90sbasketball.anchor.fm. Thanks one more time to Don Reed and thanks to everyone out there for tuning in. And with that, I'm out. My name is Brian Swain, and this has been the 90s Basketball Show.